Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today, we are extremely privileged to be joined by Joseph Keo, a solution-focused hypnotherapist based in Cambridge. Joe has worked as a hypnotherapist since 2005, is a master practitioner of NLP, and is also trained in provocative therapy and the human givens. So he brings a wide array of skills and thinking to his practice. Additionally, he's the head scriptwriter at hypnosisdownloads.com and has co-created over 800 professional hypnosis scripts and MP3s. I am super excited to be talking with him today. Hello, Joe. Hello, Howard. Very excited to be here. So look, I've got a load of questions that I'd love to get into with you, but it would be really useful to get a little background in terms of what was it that brought you to work in this area? Well, for whatever reason, I've always, since I'd say adolescence almost, I've always felt drawn to hypnosis and to exploring altered states. I remember getting a stage hypnosis book when I was about 12. Um, I, weirdly enough, I found out later after he died that my grandpa um, on my father's side was always fascinated by hypnosis. And we, we never spoke about it. Uh, so it was, it was quite weird to me. He had books on hypnosis, it turns out, hidden away in his bookshelves uh, that I, I only found out, out about later. So it could all be genetic. It could all be just that it, it flows through the family tree. But um, so I was hypnotizing people in the school library when I was 12 or 13. Um, and I think at the time, it was probably more of an extension of my interest in doing close-up magic and that whole well, they often say kids get interested in magic because they want to be popular or they want to entertain people. And, you know, I, I guess at the time, I suppose hypnosis was just for me something that was another extension of magic. But it, it became much, much more than that over, over the years. Um, and as I was growing up, it became um, a way of really exploring what the mind is capable of, not in a theoretical sense, not in an abstract sense, not in a let's get a book of psychology and read about this experiment or that experiment and see what can abstractly be done mm -hmm. uh, in another country, in a research lab, in a university. It's what can you do here and now with your mind, with your brain? What can you do in the way that you adjust your breathing, in the way that you adjust your brainwave frequencies, how you're focusing your attention, what you're visualizing, what you're communicating to yourself. It's, it produces tangible, immediate, real-world results. And it opens up so many different doorways to what you can accomplish in terms of both um, traditionally framed views of success so you know being confident at, in a job interview or being able to speak eloquently in, the, in a public speaking context but also in it opens up the more spiritual dimensions of life and um, many people have, have found ways that mindfulness and, and hypnosis have overlaps together 
and how you can explore you know incredibly profound states of deep compassion of deep stillness inside this it it unlocks the door to so much of what human beings are capable of so um yeah, as as i was growing up i became more and more intrigued and fascinated mm. by it and i can't remember where i heard this but there was um someone who was speaking about going through reading psychology books, hundreds of psychology books, and being astounded by the fact that it was interesting, but there was nothing practically you could do. Yeah, yeah. You know. I, um, so is that for you why NLP or hypnosis and the other things that you've done uh, have been so attractive to you? Because it was a practical focus. Yeah. yeah, very much, very much. It's It's something that you can actually do and test in your own direct experience. And I... I as much as I was interested in hypnosis, I was also interested in meditation. I was interested in anything that gave you direct experience. That that always seemed to me. I mean, I, I remember for a while I, I read a huge amount of Alan Watts. Um, he's a writer on Zen, mm-hmm. and uh, and he writes very poetically and very beautifully. But in, in the end, the, the, there's a point when you and you, you think, okay, or I thought to myself. I've read enough. I've read enough about meditation. I've read enough about it. It's, it's time to be doing these things, to be having a direct experience of them. So it's one thing to read about meditation, and it's one thing to um, go to an intermediary between you and the divine. It's another thing to actually be experiencing it directly, to be having a regular meditation practice in your life. Mm-hmm. Same thing with psychology. It's one thing to read about how this type of um, research shows that the human brain is more plastic than we imagine and that people can uh, make changes in this way or that way. It's another thing to be doing these things directly day in, day out in your life. And so probably what's coming across as I'm talking is that self-application has been a major driving force in my interest in in all of this. And I think think that's something that would be worth talking about a bit later Mm. as well. As much as I'm in this to be helping other people, uh, I, I think not only me, but a, a lot of people get into this sort of field as a way of helping themselves, as a way of changing themselves, as a way of transforming themselves. So I, from the very beginning, wanted stuff that I could do, uh, that, that I could experience tangible results in my own life. Are there things that you do currently in terms of, inter- like whether it's structured practice sessions or structured techniques do you do them on a regular basis do you do them daily i have done something every day <laughs> i've cleaned my teeth every day that's my accomplishment now i've i've done some some form of either meditation practice or self-hypnosis practice every day since i was a teenager it has varied what i've done mm-hmm. I, i'm not i'm not uh saying here that i have had a consistent one hour Zen uh, sitting meditation practice every day of my life. Sometimes I've explored more um, Ericksonian, like there's the Betty Erickson induction, uh, self-hypnosis induction. I've, I've explored different self-hypnosis inductions over the years, but more and more it's, it's become a meditation practice. But yes, yeah, something every day to tune myself up, to align myself inside uh, to keep me centered. Uh, yeah, that's, that's been a major part of what I do. And I know we, we've talked before, Howard, about um, the principle of, of going first with, with clients and going first meaning in its simplest form, if you are evoking a state in a client of deep relaxation and you want to be able to communicate relaxation in your voice tone and in your nonverbal behavior, then the simplest way to do that is to begin to relax yourself. If you want to be able to evoke confidence in someone or a sense of uh, optimism and determination, then you start to evoke that in yourself. Well, one thing that really, really helps you to be, because of course then you entrain the client, you, you draw them into that space much more then if you're reading out from a book, can you imagine a time when you were confident? I mean, that's um, been said many, many times. But that becomes so much easier if you're used to evoking those states in yourself anyway. And so many of the techniques from hypnosis and NLP, I find, become much, much more effective once you've taken yourself through them many, many times. Because it's not that every client you see will be the same as you. Some clients will process things at different speeds than you will. Some of them will have different preferences and how they go into hypnosis. It's not that you should always use yourself as the reference point, 
But nonetheless, having taken yourself through these techniques and principles successfully time after time after time, it gives you an inner roadmap. It gives you an inner sense of, what, of what's likely to be successful with a client. It's important to have variety. I do want to emphasize that. It's important not to always use yourself as, as the mm. reference point. But if you've taken yourself into trance lots and lots of times, if you've done timeline work with yourself, if you've worked with parts, if you've played with submodalities and changing stuff, and then you've noticed the consequences in yourself over the coming days and, and weeks afterwards, that gives you a really uh, powerful insight into what's likely to work as you're evoking stuff with clients. And it, it's, it's what can often be very helpful in stopping you from rushing, say, with clients. Like if you've seen uh, someone demonstrating a technique and they say, okay, now make the picture here, now move it back here, now switch it to here, now swish it to there. And then you try and do that just by recapitulating what you've seen someone else do or what you've read in a book. And you say to a client, okay, make the picture bigger, make it smaller, move it here, now do this, now see yourself doing this and now open your eyes. Well, A, you're not probably not paying attention to whether the client's following you or not. So there's, there's the external feedback of... Mm. Is this person, you know, and getting and verifying, have you done that? What are you noticing now at each stage? But also the internal sense of you should know that that's too fast. You should know because if you're going first, you're doing it with them. And within reason, that can be a really useful barometer or compass for what pace and what speed and, and what's likely to work. So I, I really think there's a place for self-reference in therapy as much as it's also important to use external feedback of, of watching and interacting with the client. So, and what really helps is having done a lot of self-practice. Well, I mean, I think that's, it's not just interesting. I think it's really helpful for many. And one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about um, was actually this idea that I think there are people out there who have been on, you know, uh, one training or a course or read a book and they become uh, very technique or pattern based and they're just I mean as we talked about it just now almost regurgitating step by step techniques or patterns have you got thoughts or advice around how they can get out of that mindset this is something that Michael Breen emphasizes heavily I did my master practitioner with with Michael Breen but um, you know brilliant brilliant NLP trainer and he's you know for goodness sake, you work with the, the person, working with them, not not doing techniques on them. Uh, so that whole... There's, there's, a, there's a brilliant book called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. And Ian McGilchrist is, um, in the book, bringing the idea of the division between the two hemispheres of the brain, between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, into the 21st century. In the 1970s, it became um, very popular in the management world uh, to talk about left brain in logical types and right brain creative types. Yeah. And that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a neat little way of thinking of the brain. Your, your left side of your brain is logical, the right side of your brain is creative. It's, it's nice, but so many people involved in actual neuroscience just rolled their eyes. And so well, it's far more complicated than that. You can't have, there's no such thing as a left brain person and a right brain person. So it, it became um, totally divorced from the science in the end. So uh, in the end, it, it almost became an unrespectable thing to even comment on the differences between the hemispheres. But Ian, Ian McGilchrist um, really looked at all the research that's there and so, well, yeah, the, the, there are still key differences between the hemispheres. It's not as simple as logical and creative. Mm -hmm. There's huge, huge differences. We, ha we have these two hemispheres, and they do specialize um, in different ways, in different tasks, in different ways of viewing the world, different ways of being in the world. They're, they're, they're asymmetrical in certain ways. There's this, uh, I mean, it's a... It's a deep, rich, fascinating, and incredibly dense book. I, I, I feel like it's if you want to do some um, mental weightlifting, uh, that's that's the book to to go to. I, 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 or even I physical did, weightlifting. It sounds yeah, like. yeah. I did philosophy at university. I read some mm. pretty dense texts, but I, I found um, uh, maybe maybe my brain's got a bit tired <laughs> since since doing philosophy. But I, I read a chapter at a time and had a had a break each time with this Ian McGilchrist book. But the point is, so. <laughs> Ian McGilchrist talks about how the left hemisphere has a very much a, 
an approach of of it's the um it's it's linked if you will to humanity's ability to use tools to work on the world to manipulate the world to do this too it's uh, the left hemisphere is is in most typically wired human beings it's associated with the the right side of the body it controls the right side of the body we're we're cross-wired in terms of our hemispheres so if you think about most right-handed people that's the the hand that uh you use to turn the screwdriver to to adjust things to to work on the world whereas the right hemisphere is much more uh, about embodied uh being present with uh and holistic uh perception of the world so how all things fit together and if you if you're just focused on the patterns on using nlp patterns on people then you're just working from a left hemispheric perspective. You're just, do, 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 I, I will, I will z- zoom in on this, this one pattern and I will do this technique on this object. So it objectifies people. Mm-hmm. And I am not saying that is totally wrong. I'm saying it's missing out on something so, so very important, which is being with the person, human being to human being. And that you can only be, uh, you can only become more effective as a therapist by including both in your work so being present with them person to person and having that ability to use techniques on someone but much more in the end it becomes rather than working on them you're working with them so i mean nlp techniques have sometimes been compared to the way that in karate you you do katas so you you, these set patterns that you learn for doing a swish an anchoring exercise a visual squash they are great for drilling into the nervous system, into the muscle memory, uh, how these useful patterns can work. But then if all you do is take the empty shells of these patterns and you use them on people in a left hemispheric, I will adjust this entity before me with a screwdriver, uh, you're very soon going to run into, into problems. And you're very soon going to find that people don't engage with you in a way that needs to happen for effective therapy to take place because uh, there needs to be that human-human, person-to-person interaction going on as well, which is harder to quantify. It's harder to say, this is the bullet point list for human-to-human interaction because it's not that part of the brain. So if it sounds wishy-washy, it's because you can't really put it into a bullet point list. But you know the difference (laughs) when you're working with someone and connected to them Yep. versus working on them uh, with, you know, a screwdriver. Don't use screwdrivers in therapy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I mean, that's, that's uh, A, incredibly interesting and uh, insightful. I want to take you back uh, to something you kind of went into uh, earlier, which was you talked about this idea of going first and you used the word they kind of get sucked into your state. Mm. Um, and... Um, We've spoken before, and I've, I've sort of muted this idea that I almost believe that in a therapeutic interaction, someone comes in with problems, and there's whether I coined the term or not, but there's kind of what I would call a battle of the trances, and that whoever is the most congruent with their state tends to, to lead the direction where it's going. Um, I wonder whether the, a that was something that you'd come across uh, or you, you felt uh, was also true, uh, and b you know advice if people find themselves getting kind of swept along in that. Uh, other things that you would suggest? Uh, this is an issue that I think just about all therapists and change work practitioners will encounter. Um, and there are there's a whole bunch of different things to, to be said about it. So yes, what do you do with a client who is in an intense emotional state and who wants to talk a lot about their story mm-hmm. of what happened to them? The first thing I'd say, so yeah, I, I, the battle of the trances is um, is certainly one, one way it can feel. And uh, you want to be able to lead that client in a more resourceful direction. But you can feel <laughs> their story sapping your will. And the more that you buy into their beliefs and the more, the more you buy into the tragedy of what's happened to them and the suffering that they've experienced and the hopelessness that they've experienced, um, the less easy it becomes for you to uh, 
to remain grounded and present and focused and to be able to guide them in an optimistic direction. This is there's there's a there's some awful life expectancy statistics for um, psychiatrists and for people. Uh, I don't know if it applies to counselors as well, but uh, you know it's it's not it's this is it's a serious thing to consider. It is not a healthy profession to be in. Being in counseling, maybe being in psychiatry, being in any any form of therapy as a practitioner, if you are spending the majority of your time listening to people complaining and emoting and being incredibly negative about their problems. Now that that presents an interesting uh, puzzle because you know what does that mean? Does that mean that you need to sacrifice your life expectancy because? It, I don't have the figures to hand, but look into them. Look into them. <laughs> if you want to live a long, healthy, happy life, it's a little bit scary. If, if your day-in, day-out job is seeing several clients a day and all of them are depressed and complaining, if you're not careful, it, it, it's, it can suck you into it. It can. So this whole thing of how do you um, avoid that? It's not just for the benefit of the client. It is for your own long-term mental health. Uh, you know, do, do not take that lightly. There's, there's something we all need to think about as, as therapists there. Um, you know, the, the approach that you, do to th that you have towards therapy has to include yourself as well and your own sanity and your own well-being. Um, the manner with which you deal with the client uh, is, is so very important. I've learned a lot from Frank Farrelly and from Nick Kemp, um, who, who teaches provocative change works, which is his own innovation, fusing Ericksonian hypnosis and provocative therapy and a few bits and bobs of his own invention. Uh, you know, fantastic stuff for um, interrupting the patterns of the client, uh, interrupting the usual way that they might think tell themselves the story of what's happened to them, the, uh, the tale of woe. And, uh, you know, that sounds so un uncompassionate even for me to say, the tale of woe. But this is something that we really need to think about. H in what way do you show compassion to clients? And in what way do you keep yourself detached from their story? And, and finding that balance is so important. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about just briefly is um, something that I, I got from Stephen Gilligan. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, Stephen Gilligan's beautiful, beautiful work with people and very, very um, powerful and, and moving stuff. And he, he recommends as a, as, as a therapist holding, how can I put it? He's talking about rem remaining grounded whilst the client is speaking. But it's not so much a battle of wills. It's not so much um, I will draw you into my state or you will draw me into your state. It's it's very much see Stephen Gilligan's very, very so Ericksonian in his work and he's, he's also um, very accomplished at Aikido so like both of these Erickson of course the master of utilization and Aikido using your opponent's energy or your partner's energy mm -hmm. um, you know as, as your as your fighting I don't know what Aikido practitioners call it but um, anyhow so there's an energy that the client's offering to you. And it's not so much that you need to fight against it by amplifying your own state. It's that you allow that to be there and you create a space around that, a grounded, stable space where the client can be having their emotions and you're communicating to them that it's okay for them to be feeling that way. So it's that utilizing it. You're not getting drawn into it, but you're not pushing against it either. So you're, you're, and that's why I'm using the phrase sinking beneath it. It's you find a lower center, a center that's closer to the earth. I mean, that's a, it's a metaphorical way of talking about it, but it can also be an embodied way of talking about it. A physical center that's beneath all of their emoting. And so you can stay present with what they're experiencing. Now, when you've done that, it then becomes easier to think clearly, to have, a, to have both compassion and a sense of humor, and to be able to interrupt them to be able also to let them talk sometimes to not feel pressured that you have to immediately interrupt them but you, yes you maintain your own state and you and, and that, that that communicates something to the client as well so that you know that it's it's okay for them to feel how they feel that it's safe for them to feel this way right now 
and that that immediately starts to soften things in my experience in the session that uh, so there's a, there's a power in acceptance there's a power in the yin you know, like the yin and the yang. If 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 um, the way often, if you've been on a training with Richard Bandler or that kind of style of NLP, there's there's often quite a yang quality to it, of evoking states of frustration, of impatience, of determination, of go for it, of firing off anchors, of doing things. And th there's a real power to that, to having a yang energy to it, of enough of the tale of woe. Let's anchor this. Let's anchor that. But the the yin side to therapy, the the counter side to all of that is having that place of, of grounded acceptance, of letting the client um, know that it's okay for them to feel how they feel. That in itself has magic. And it's not a case of one or the other. It's not a case of left hemisphere or right hemisphere. It's not a case of yin or yang. Uh, being able to be present and being, having the clarity of mind and the confidence to know when to interrupt the pattern, when to shift them in a different direction. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot that can be done and a lot that needs to be done in, in therapy to stop both client and practitioner getting sucked into uh, a negative trance state. But, um, and yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll leave it there mm. for now. But it's, there's, it's, there's a big question. It, it, it is. And, um, and one vital to our well-being <laughs> as therapists. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, t tell me more about provocative work and provocative therapy. Um, because I don't know that it, or, or, or that uh, all our listeners will know exactly what no. provocative therapy is, uh, or uh, and some of them may be even perturbed by the fact that there is a therapy which yeah. is called provocative therapy. Sure, sure. So um, <clears throat> the one the one problem with the name provocative therapy is that <clears throat> provocation very naturally, I think, can be associated with confrontation. Like, you know, why are you doing this? Stop it! Stop it! Therapy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I keep thinking this. Stop it! Stop it! So that's that's not provocative therapy. Provocative therapy is, um, in essence, well, it's playing devil's advocate with the client and doing so in a way where they recognize the double meaning in your words, where they are in on the joke. So it's tempting the client to continue their sinning ways, <laughs> that's a phrase Frank Farrelly would always use, but the, the way that you've been, um, you know, avoiding people socially, you, you, you know, you, you probably haven't been doing it enough. And what you, what you need to do really is to cut yourself off from the world even more. If you get yourself a, a full, you know, official Doctor Who Daleks costume, not even a costume, but one of the original models, and you hide inside that, and then you disguise your voice with a, a voice modulator of the Dalek, and you go, hello, my name is Tom, then you won't be exposed to anyone, and people will be amused by you as well. It's, so you take someone with social anxiety, and you, you start to lead them into really obscure, weird scenarios, which would be a natural extension of, what, of the patterns that they're already doing. If someone's afraid to go out, then... Imagine, you know, getting them to imagine weird and um, totally impractical scenarios. Now, it might seem, okay, well, this isn't taking their problem very seriously. But the point is, when it's done, when this is done in a relaxed, playful manner, things start to change. And people begin to look at their problems in a different way because being too serious and taking, it, taking their problem too seriously hasn't helped them so far. And sometimes just trying to do left brain, step by step, working on the problem, I will now fire this seven anchor on my elbow and now I will think of submodality <laughs> uh, number 37, you know, pattern four, I am now changed. Uh, it doesn't always work with people. So people sometimes what's so much more effective is changing the manner with which you communicate with people and having a relaxed, playful manner in, in, in how, that, that has heart with it, it has compassion there. But being able to take people into unusual and obscure and, and weird uh, ways of thinking, it's very much like how kings and queens in times past needed so very much to have the court jester to actually tell them the truth. 
the fool, really, not just the jester, mm. the fool, it's the archetype of the fool, to tell them the truth through humor, through stories, uh, because they're surrounded by sycophants or sometimes enemies. <laughs> but, you know, either, either there's the people attacking the king or the queen, or there's the advisors say, oh, you're, you know, you're absolutely right, your majesty, or maybe you could do this, but you're absolutely, you know, you're wonderful. Oh, what wonderful taste you have, your majesty. And neither of those things uh, often what the king or the queen really needs. Uh, sometimes what they really need is to hear the truth, and the truth can come through in humor. And it's actually something that's um, very much lacking in this modern world. I, know, I mean, we do have stand-up comics, um, but that place for um, for us to hear truths about ourselves through through humor, through um, sometimes hard truths as well, through through humor, it's uh, you know, we've, we've all become so politically correct, uh, or the, the culture around us has become so politically correct, and everyone the idea is that you know therapy needs kid gloves. The therapist needs to have kid gloves on and be very soft, very serious, very gentle. So you've come here today um, because you want to stop smoking. Is that is that right? Yeah. And, and you found it really difficult, have you, to stop smoking? Okay. okay do, you, do you want to sit down? Now, in a minute, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you to relax a bit. Is that okay? Now, it's, it's going to be perfectly okay. Now, you communicate. If you're using that excessive faux gentleness, uh, even with the best of intentions, you're communicating a message that the client's fragile. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, which, which is uh, you are communicating a negative hypnotic suggestion to them through your tone of voice. If you're really, really kid gloves on, Softly, are you okay? Are you sure you're? Is that okay? So gentle that that in itself is a, is a negative, harmful hypnotic communication. So being able to have a sense of humor as you work, mm. being able to have a relaxed, personable, I hope, manner, uh, and yeah, okay. Sometimes being willing to wind the client up, but then you know, that in itself is is a provocation that can be helpful to help them have the irritation with themselves. God, I've had enough of thinking this way. Uh, that that can stimulate change. So, yeah, very, very, very powerful stuff. I mean, I'd, I'd like to add in there because I, I, I know, and we've spoken before about this, but but I, I have worked provocatively on some occasions with, with clients mm. and it can feel, I think for many, like a very different way of working. And that very soft, gentle, reassuring, are you okay? I think for many, that is almost a stereotypical view of what the outsider perceives therapy to be like. Yeah. They imagine that therapy is going and talking to someone where they unload, they offload their problems. They just go and talk and someone will be non-judgmental and talk to them. And if you are initially quiet, gentle, reassuring to them and you do treat them with kid gloves, I think many therapists can almost fool themselves into thinking they're helping because the re immediate response you will get from them is, oh, it's so nice talking to you. Mm. And you get a psycho the therapist gets a psychological reward because they feel like they're doing something, they're helping someone. Mm. whereas actually what you leave them with is a deeper sown seed that leads them to feeling like they need to be treated like that and I, I found that when I've worked provocatively with people I, I don't always get such a pleasant psychological immediate return mm -hmm. but actually in the long term they change and they appreciate what happened yeah absolutely absolutely I mean that's that's a, I, I like that as an insight this is something I've 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 given some thought to over the years and I believe that there is potentially value in pretty much every single kind of therapy, even psychoanalysis. There is potentially value in every type of, of psychotherapy, but, 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 you need the right therapy for the right client or the right problem. And, for example, someone with depression who goes to psychoanalysis is probably making a very, very poor choice because depression is characterized by ruminating and ruminating and ruminating. And psychoanalysis is the therapy of rumination. So if someone is reflecting on their mistakes, on their problems, on their childhood, and then they're going once a week to talk about their problems and their mistakes and their childhood and analyzing why they are the way they are, that, as a general rule, will be feeding into the problem itself. And research backs this up. For most people, most of the time, psychoanalysis is not a good treatment choice 
for depression. Now, why do I say it can be useful? Well, for example, um, as as an actor, uh, <laughs> I, I could have been an actor. See how? Yeah, of course, of course, yes. We can all, we can all um, tell. We can all tell. Always had, uh, yes, always had that in my heart. Um, now, if 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 I hadn't become a hypnotherapist, that may have been the route I'd have gone to. There's 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 also links there. There's a trance that people go into in in theatre and acting. But in in exploring the story of your life and exploring all the textures of the different emotional moments of things that may have stimulated different attitudes and responses in you and coming to understand what it is to be human, I think that, there, that there's something beautiful that people can sometimes discover in, in psychoanalysis. And I don't know if it's always exactly true because we know how malleable memory is and that if you start to reflect on a certain era, era of your life, uh, for an extended period of time and you look at childhood photos maybe, you, you'll start to conjure up things that become very meaningful to you that perhaps didn't actually happen in exactly that way. But nonetheless, self-reflection and spotting patterns saying, okay, I see this recurring theme in what I did when I was eight and what I did when I was 14 and what I did when I was 18. There's a pattern here that actually there, there can be a value to, to self-reflection. It's just that if someone is socially isolated and if they're watching daytime TV all day and they're feeling depressed and they're unemployed and they're thinking about their mistakes, the last thing they need to be doing is to be paying someone to help them to reflect on their childhood to spot patterns. So it's not that psychoanalysis is without value. It's just that the right therapy for the right client at the right time and in the same way, what we were just talking about with that whole sympathetic voice tone, the very non-directive mm. type of therapy, how do you feel about that? Are you okay? And, and how do you feel about how you feel about that? Well, you know, that, that's, that's essentially a caricature of counselling. And counselling can be very valuable in the same way that going to confession in a, in a Catholic <laughs> church, people have found value in this over the years. And um, getting something off your chest, a secret, uh, a private anxiety that you don't know how to talk to people about. I'm not saying that's valueless. I, 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 people get something out of that. And, you know, as much as in the NLP community, we, we do tend to poke fun at it because as a, as a therapeutic um, method of change, it's not... Uh, particularly radical or dynamic or effective. It's not really changing their patterns. But for a person who's never talked about something terrible that happened to them, there is a value for, for, for some people in getting it off their chest. However, uh, there was some research done on people who were in the Hillsborough disaster who went through, uh, uh, I believe it was a critical debriefing um, type of therapy, which is essentially discussing what happened to them. And compared to the people who didn't go through that, uh, the people who didn't go through it were better off psychologically. So, you know, rehashing traumas and talking about them um, can also have a negative effect. So I'm 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 quite open-minded. I really am. I I don't want to just tar all of counselling with the same brush. But if you've been through a, a trauma recently, it might not be the best thing to relive it with someone week in week out. Again, so basically, if you've got a serious psychological problem. You that needs dressing, uh, you probably want to be seeing someone who's going to help you change it versus someone who's just going to help you talk about it and to try to understand it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I just, I'm just saying I think there is a place for all of these things, but just be careful. And if you really want to change something, make sure that you're seeing someone who is committed to helping you change it. Because some therapists have very different training, very different intentions from that. Some therapists do want to help you just understand it, want to help you have insight into it. And that's a very different, you're going to see uh, someone with a totally different job there. You're not, it's, that's not really someone who's going to help you change it. That's someone who wants you to help you spot patterns and have insight into your life, which is potentially a worthy, interesting task. That's not about changing the problem. If you're going to see someone who wants to give you a chance to talk about it, to open up about how you've been feeling, to let you know that you know, it's okay to be human and it's okay to have those things, well, you may get value from that. And maybe that value will be a little more than just a nice cup of tea and a, a nice good feeling inside. Maybe you will feel a genuine sense of a weight off your shoulders and relief, like someone having gone to confession at Catholic Church. But just be aware that you're not really going to someone whose job is to help you to change that pattern. 
mm. that's much more <clears throat> of the feeling of going to confession, you know. So, yeah, right, the right therapy for the right person at the right time. My mm. mission, as you know, is I want to begin to wake up therapists, wake up people in the street um, to this idea that rapid change can happen. And what I wanted to do is ask, have you got some examples of people who have come in to Europe to see you, for example, with an issue? And when they leave, you know something has shifted. It is different. There is a rapid change. I remember one client I saw who just came for weight loss. So a lot of things came up in that session. And but the, the, I mean, in, in terms of um, particular traumas that her parents had been through in their lifetime and how that had affected her. So it'd be, you know, it was quite a, a weighty session, no pun intended. And um, but that was that was one of the most dramatic sessions I can recall recently because not only did she lose the weight, not only did she, uh, and I mean, not not obviously not in some magical way, but you know, over the weeks and months following. And there, there were a couple of follow-up sessions I had with her as well. But it was that first session that triggered everything. Um, so there was the weight loss. There was She let go of um, something that she'd been carrying around with her for years, uh, metaphorically speaking. And that was, it was, you know, it was a weight that she'd been carrying. And we worked hypnotically and metaphorically uh, about gradually, respectfully, letting go of that because that was something that was important to her it wasn't something to just shove away this is another important thing about listening to your clients i think when i'd been starting out as a therapist i might have you know said <laughs> and you're now free from that weight you're free from you know the, the thing you've been carrying around you can shove it away off into the past be gone be gone whereas actually <laughs> in communicating with her not using a technique on her became so very clear that that burden that she'd been metaphorically carrying around needed to be uh, respectfully set to one side piece by piece uh, as she was ready to do it and that she began doing that in the trance as we were working together that that, that, that it was so much more powerful I think that session because I was working with her as opposed to doing a technique on her and m most significantly um, this lifelong seasonal affective disorder that she'd had of feeling really depressed every winter mm -hmm. was just gone just gone yep. and uh, yeah, the next winter, because I I, st I stayed in touch with her, still just gone, and that was that was just from from one session. But I, I, um, I you know it, we briefly talked about that in the session itself, uh, and I you know briefly alluded to sunlight and sun shining in her mind, um, but it wasn't the primary focus of the mm. session. And but yeah, there's so much that that we accomplished, um, and that was primarily through hypnosis and through working with her metaphors uh, particularly this burden that she felt like she'd been carrying that's so it was i'd say metaphor work combined with with hypnosis work that was, was really powerful there when i was first starting out as a therapist i did a phobia cure for a guy who was afraid of going on the london underground and it all went very smoothly it was a good session and he seemed happy and then I uh, didn't hear back from him for a year. And a year later, he sent me an email and said, Joe, uh, thanks so much. I just today went tried going down an escalator uh, onto the platform, the underground. I felt fine. Uh, I didn't, didn't try and go on a train, but I, I felt fine. I was, uh, you know, and then he went, and I thought, what, what's going on here? And really, in retrospect, and that was, that was could be, I think it was about 10 years ago now that I saw that guy. Um, so I would do things differently today. But at the time, after the session that I'd had with him, I realized he wasn't convinced that anything had changed. So he didn't test it. And because he didn't test it, he therefore had a story in his mind that probably he was still afraid of the underground, even though he didn't really know. And then he, so he only he only discovered that discovered it had worked so a year later. Um, so one thing that's so important is to test repeatedly in the session if you can uh, to have a if there's a high place and you know, someone's afraid of heights, take them out. Like I used to have a. A, a window that looked down over a quite a high drop in the place I worked at before where I am now and um, 
yeah, I, I used to, if someone had a height phobia, I'd get them to look out a bit before we did the work and they went, oh, <laughs> I feel queasy. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, so getting them, you know, afterwards, oh, oh, wait, this is really different. Oh, yeah, actually that feels different now. Um, you know, I've sometimes, I haven't always had spiders to hand, but I've, I've sometimes played people videos of spiders on the computer beforehand and afterwards. So as much as you can get them to test, you can't always test like that sometimes it just has to be an, an, an imagination test if someone's um uh, afraid of going on a date you know you, you can't be um serrano de bergerac like, you know just whispering things from the side like tell them this are you okay yes i'm enjoying it uh you know there's situations where you, you can't be with them at the time and they don't want you with them um but uh you know you can do testing in the imagination uh when you thought of this situation half an hour ago and it was like a level 10 intensity. What's different now? Oh, it's just like a level 2 now of intensity. It's that all the old emotions just dissipated and it feels more detached. Now, are you sure? You're sure? You're not just saying that to make me happy, are you? No, no. Oh, come on. Well, what happened? If you try, can you try and get it back up? At least kind of a 6 or a 7. Go on, really try. No, I, I actually can't think of it how I used to think about it. Well, it can't be that easy. So you're teasing them and, and, and getting them to try in vain to get mm-hmm. it back to how it was. How do you know when you've established that rapport enough to begin to get playful, enough to begin to move somewhere else? What, what are you seeing? What are you experiencing the session? What's going on internally for you as a therapist that lets you know it's time to move into kind of a different phase? I very much do aim for the person to know that they're being listened to, to know that they're being understood. And that is one conscious representation that I do have of how I build rapport. I very much feedback what they've been saying. Uh, and also, I mean, this is um, something that, for example, that's true of depression is that most people who are depressed will uh, have disturbed sleep. Um, and early morning awakening is a, is a classic pattern of depression. Being able to tell that to a depressed person instantly makes them know, okay, you, you do know what this is like you do know what depression's like you do know um what you're talking about and i mean i'm not saying that's true of 100 percent of depressed people but as a rule you can say things like that you can say uh, so you know have, have you noticed yourself waking up early in the morning and so many people go yeah yeah i really really have i wake up at four and i can't get back to sleep and you can talk to them about why that's um why that's the case and how depression interferes with um, slow wave sleep and people tend to dream more because they're processing all the ruminations of the day um you know talking about people who lack confidence at work uh you know just saying see do you, do you notice yourself sometimes feeling like an imposter and in classical nlp then that won't be well that's mind reading you're imposing your content but actually a huge amount of people um report having imposter syndrome it's, it's a worldwide phenomenon lots of people feel like they're going to be found out I am going to be fat. I bet a huge number of therapists, and I know a huge number of therapists feel this way because I've I've spoken to a lot of therapists over the years. But that mm-hmm. I'm going to be found found out. Very common uh, way that anxiety can can manifest itself. So being able to talk in these universals, these generalities, and to be able to listen to the specifics of what the client's been saying and to feed that back to them, uh, you know, the, that those are approaches. That uh, but again, not to be done in a left hemispheric working on someone i will now use the rapport building approach 17 uh and much more that over time they should become just flowing easy going you know easy ways that you communicate with people so just uh, one more thing i'd like to add this is a more general thing about doing nlp hypnosis and even about training as well i so um Sometimes when you see, say, someone like Richard Bandler teaching and, um, you know, what he's doing seems so incomprehensible about the way he layers different stories together and the way he appears to be tracking so much. And in fact, when you see anyone doing something where they're incredibly skilled and and fluent at it, um, it can seem unachievable. And I'm I'm always reminded of a time I started just after university. I had no idea what I was doing after university. I I got my philosophy degree. <laughs> Give me a job. <laughs> um, so yeah, what do you do with a philosophy degree? But anyhow, I so for a while I just did the same job as uh, my flatmate did at the time, which was um, teaching English to foreign students in in London. And there's a huge amount, huge amount that you can learn from doing that. 
about evoking states because how do you teach vocabulary to people who don't speak English? You evoke universal examples of the vocabulary. But anyhow, I discovered as I started teaching that I had no, no clue about the formal structure of English grammar because when I grew up, the education ministers at the time had deemed that learning grammar is non-essential to an education. So I, I knew nouns, verbs, and adjectives, and maybe adverbs, but asked me what an article was or a preposition or a phrasal verb, and I hadn't a clue. And I felt very out of my depth. And the point is that after a few weeks and after a few months and after just learning you know, a few chapters ahead in the textbook uh, from the students, I began to loosen up and I began to have fun and I began to trust in my intuitions as a teacher, as a native speaker of the language and actually increasingly as an expert at the structure of grammar, uh, both teaching it formally and embodying it as a native speaker. And I, I, I'll always remember the, the point when you know I, I could improvise a whole three-hour lesson, because there were three-hour lessons at the time, um, with no textbook. If the photocopy was broken that day, uh, no photocopies. I could draw a phonemic chart on the board and it all became so fluent. And there's no way I could ever have done that when I was first starting out. And in, in the same way with, with therapy, it will feel clunky at first. You, you do feel like you're out of your depth. It will, it's natural to say, oh God, what, right, I'll just look at that pattern in the book because I'm going to use that pattern with that client. And it, experience matters and you have to give yourself time to get experienced and give yourself time to become fluent and to, you, you, you know, you, you can't rush that process. So, I mean, some, I'm very um, much of the philosophy that's, you know, it's a really, really bad idea to use scripts when you're working with clients. I can't believe really that people do it. And having said that, in the very, very, very early days, especially when you're first practicing and before you're charging people, you know, use whatever crutches you need to use. There's that, there is that awkward, clunky learning stage with anything. And the fluency comes later. And you, you can't, you, you, there are ways of accelerating your progress, sure. But you can't leapfrog, I don't believe anyway, to mastery in a few days or even in a few weeks. And I, you know, I'm still learning and developing even now very much. I will do for my whole life at this. Um, but, uh, yeah, give you know, if you're starting out, be, be patient with yourself and give yourself time to be a bit clunky and clumsy at things and just keep drilling in the patterns, keep going through the karate katas of NLP patterns and then you'll start to find it flows, it flows more easily and it's, you know, you could just feel like you're, you're doing things without knowing that you're doing them, including, I guess, the way that I you know, get rapport with clients in my, what to my mind is just a you know, relaxed, everyday, matter-of-fact way but where I am inevitably seeding expectations of change without even necessarily realizing it. If people are listening to this podcast uh, and they're keen to learn more about you, the work you do, how should they get in touch? My main website for therapy is josephko.co.uk. Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure, and um, I think people listening to it are, are going to find it fascinating uh, and hopefully insightful um, hearing uh, you, know, you talk about these things uh, and very reassuring as well. Thank, thanks for chatting to me, Howard. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works. <laughs>